Well, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in internet land. We are here with, uh, it's kind of a bittersweet moment, honestly. This is the the final podcast uh, for Horror Fest that me and I are doing. Uh, this final special edition of Phantom Talk uh, for Halloween. Uh, we're doing one more. We've got one more great movie for you. Uh, I know we had said we were going to do Vertigo. We switched that up because Vertigo is... Uh, is uh, apparently hard to come by, which I don't know why it's unequivocally one of the top 20 best movies ever. Don't at me on that. Uh, but like, and for whatever reason, it's just really hard to find. I don't know why that is, but, uh, but it's probably, it's probably for the best. We switched up to Cabin in the Woods. Uh, one of my favorite movies. Al, I know it's one of your favorite movies. With me as always, I've got Red Lanyard. Al, Al, how you doing tonight, man? Uh, I'm doing great, man. I'm doing great. I watched, um, <laughs> I watched a couple of really fun horror movies today. Um, Sam Hain is upon us, so I am I'm doing just fine. Real real quick, we we did we did five we did five movies. Okay, we we're we're, we're getting ready to do our fifth movie. We've done The Shining, we've done Witch, we've done Friday Thirteenth, we did uh, the Fourth Kind, <laughs> and now we're on Cabin in the Woods. Okay, all right, mm-hmm. but but Al. Since you are the Halloween expert, okay, oh boy. Right? and as we all know, like Halloween is the is the time, you know, to to go out and and grab that significant other that you've been wanting to find and wanting to talk to. So let me ask you this question, okay? Because I think Cabin in the Woods probably a pretty good. I mean, in in, in my opinion, or maybe maybe I could be wrong on this, and maybe that's why I'm not getting dates. Probably a pretty decent date movie for a horror movie. Sure, okay. sure. So tell me, what are some what are some good? You know, here at Fam Correspondence, we're all we, we do try to help people in in, in all aspects of their life. Uh, we're all extremely good at romance. So it's true. What are, so exactly, you know, you being newly married, definitely apparently really good at romance. So mm. what are some good movies, horror movies, if you want to? Um, you know, go out with your significant other, go out with your partner. Uh, what are some good horror movies that, you know, aren't just so god awful and gruesome uh, that it just takes you out of the mood for romance? What are some good horror movies for romance? Oh, well, I mean, when you talk good horror films uh, to help facilitate a, a romantic vibe, I mean, you know, you're talking about hostile. Um, <laughs> you know, you're. Talking about it follows. It follows is a great is a great vibe check for romance. Oh um, man, you know, yeah, it follows, you know the it creep. Follows. The creep is an excellent um, facilitator of romance. You know, talk about your good relationships there. Yeah, um, yeah absolutely. I'm no, really kind no. of upset we didn't do it. Follows. That's that's an That might be one to put on the bout, on the ticket for next year. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. But um, no, no, actually. Um, s- s- since you bring it up, though, um, um, I do have a wonderful wife, and um, she has been very helpful and very tolerant um, every year that we've been together of my fascination um, with Halloween um, and Halloween films and horror films and all that. Um, and actually, um, <laughs> Happened in the Woods uh, um, is one of her favorites as well. Uh, it's a good one to sit and watch and kind of have some laughs, enjoy um, a bunch of the references and see what kind of references you can pick out and they can pick out. Um, 
And then I would say another one as well, um, a recent one, is uh, uh, the Child's Play remake. Um, I think it's really good. Um, kind of um, examine some good scares, some good kills without getting too uh, too dark and gruesome. So, yeah. And everybody loves Aubrey Plaza. Everybody loves Aubrey Plaza. I sure do. If you don't, there isn't anybody that doesn't love Aubrey wrong. Plaza. I think that's like once again, I'm always I'm always doing call outs to Nick uh, because I want him to be more involved. So I think I think Aubrey Plaza is one of the one of like Nick's crushes or whatever. I think if I if I'm remembering correctly, and and, and I mean he's he's got pretty decent taste there. I think. Well, anyway, uh, we're so yeah. I, I love Cabin in the Woods. Uh, I think it's a uh, just a fantastic movie. I think it's one um, that honestly brings together a lot of what we've been talking about because Cabin in the Woods. Here's the thing. Okay, all right. I'm gonna ask you this, Al. Okay, because I kind of struggle with this. I'm ready. I don't think Cabin in the Woods is a deconstruction of the horror movie genre. I don't think it is. I think there's a there's a there's an element of people that think it is, uh, or a group of people that think it is that think that this is a movie that's, you know, trying to deconstruct horror movies in the same way that say Watchmen deconstructs superheroes or Deadpool even deconstructs uh, superhero movies. I think Cabin in the Woods is almost a, more of an homage. What do you think? Um, yeah, I would say that um, that uh, Cabin in the Woods is more of like an homage or almost like um, a a um um an earnest tribute um to horror films uh just with like all of the references you know the examination of the different um tropes and um and archetypes that have been established um over the years in horror films um and i think that's where people get the idea that it's um a construction of horror is that it does make a very um on the nose point to kind of talk about the different um, tropes and archetypes that um, have come up over the years. But um, yeah, I would almost say to kind of draw the, draw the difference between the two things a bit more. I'm thinking that if you want more of a deconstructionist take on horror films, I think you look more towards, um, and I've talked about this movie on the podcast before when we were talking about uh, uh, Friday the 13th, is um, is um, this indie horror film called uh, Behind the Mask, The Rise of Leslie Vernon. Mm-hmm. I would say that kind of fits the definition of um, a deconstruction of horror um, a lot more because it's told from uh, the point of view of the person who's trying to to follow in the footsteps of all the great um, slashers and kind of like um, explores the themes behind it, uh, kind of tries to examine and unravel some of the um, the mysteries uh, within that genre. Whereas Cabin in the Woods, way more, um, it's very self-aware, but I don't think it's really trying to like remove any of like the the um uh the mystery or anything with in horror films i think it's more just kind of a tribute and just kind of trying to um show respect for a lot of the movies that have come before it yeah i i think that's correct i think of like deconstructionist work typically uh of course this is, this is a josh harsey opinion so take take it for what you want but i think of deconstructionist work you're typically seeing something that's trying to 
get you to analyze more of what's being deconstructed. And I don't really think Kevin Woods is trying to do that. I think Kevin Woods is almost doing an opposite thing, really, because, you know, I mean, I'm not, I'm not trying to give this movie more weight than it has, but this is this is a movie that's really based on the worship of horror movies in a lot of ways. I mean, it, that's literally what's happening within this movie is a worshipful structure of horror, you know, and and I, and I think there's a sense where yeah, there's there's fun in that, but at the same time, there's also this idea that uh, Joss Whedon and, and Drew Goddard, uh, who wrote and directed the movie, are trying to say like these are movies. Um, that were seminal to who we are, you know, and that's why we're doing this movie the way it is, because it, it really is a tribute to a lot of things. Um, I do think uh, this this movie, man, this movie does so many things well. Like I said, I, before we even started out, I was, you know, and I, I told you, I was like, this is one of my favorite horror movies, uh, newer horror movies. Um, I saw it in theaters, uh, and, and I, I want to bring this up because I love when... Uh, a movie's marketing is fantastic. Like it, it, it is 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 good. Okay, like we see so many movies that are marketed really badly. Mm. Um, that movies that are marketed well uh, can really elevate things. And um, you know, we talk about that with Blair Witch. Blair Witch, whatever, whatever your your opinion of the movie is, the marketing for Blair Witch was fantastic. The marketing for Saul was fantastic. Mm. Um, you know, the marketing for uh, Cabin in the Woods was fantastic. I remember um, uh, going to see or reading about it uh, first. IGN did a review of it, and IGN's review was essentially like, first and foremost, you're planning on seeing this movie, stop right now. Okay, and so I was like, okay, I'm right now, <laughs> you know. And, and I, I called up Micah, called up Kyle, uh, you know, my good friends. Uh, we were in, uh, I was living in Kirkwood at the time. Uh, in in Salvisa, you know, Micah and and Kyle, we were all in that area, uh, in that you know northern uh, northern uh, middle Kentucky area, and we all went to Danville, Kentucky, and we went to go watch this movie, not knowing anything about it. And I remember the poster was really confusing to us. I don't know if you ever seen the poster or whatever, but it's basically, you know, the it's the cabin in the woods, and you've got one cabin on top of another cabin on top of another cabin, and they're kind of like twisted almost like a Rubik's cube. And I remember looking at the poster going, what is this going to be? And that poster is a completely accurate representation of what's going to happen in this movie. Yeah. And yet at the same time, when you see that poster, you have no clue what's going to happen. I thought that's so beautiful to me that, that, that someone actually thought this, thought that through with what is essentially, you know, I don't know, probably about a, you know, less than $10 million budgeted movie. But someone actually thought that through you know, to, to do that and to, you know, just to add that extra layer. Uh, you said you saw it in theaters. Al, how much, how much did you know about this movie before you went to go see it? Um, actually, I, I didn't know hardly anything about it. Um, uh, I knew that um, I'd heard that it was a really, really good horror film. Um, and if you all this thing can recall, there was... Um, I'm not going to say a shortage of really good horror films at that time, but um, this one was uh, really getting reviewed as one that was really uh, standing out um, amongst all of its peers um, in that three to four year um, time period. So um, 
But no, other than that, I really didn't know anything about it. Um, and I would almost say that that's the best way to go into the Cabin in the Woods is to um, not really know a whole lot about it and just kind of watch the story um, unfold in real time. Uh, yeah, because the <laughs> the opening of this movie, I'm not going to say it's the most perfect opening of movie ever, but I'm not going to not say that either. Um, because when you're sitting down to watch this movie, basically what ends up happening is you get like this really creepy, like, uh, this creepy credit sequence. And then there's just two dudes talking, Rick Jenkins, mm-hmm. Bradley Whitford, just talking, mm-hmm. just talking about, you know, Bradley Whitford's, you know, his wife is doing fertility treatments and they're just talking about all this stuff, you know, and it's just another day at the office and, Within, I'll never forget watching the opening and going, what in the world is this movie? What (laughs) is this? And and that's what this movie does so well. There are so much, there's so much info dump in this movie. And you never notice it. Yes. Because it never tells you more than you need to know. In fact, there's a lot of stuff you really don't end up knowing, okay, by the end of this movie. But it never tells you more than you need to know, and yet it tells you everything you need to know to make this movie work. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. That is a really interesting tightrope to pull off. Uh, movies are movies are really a lot of movies are really bad about that. Uh, you know, I, I hate to pick on like th- th- this is this is one of my main issues with, and I know this is you know, not not even anywhere close to a horror movie. This is one of my main issues with the Star Wars prequel movies is that the info dumps in those movies are just so arduous and hard to get through. And every single time in this movie, when when you've got an info dump, when you have someone explaining something to you, it's because of a character that... It's either done in a way where they're explaining it because they're doing it in that moment or they're explaining it to that new guard that is there. It's just really well done how everything is stretched out. Or they're explaining it during a hilarious betting sequence. Yeah. You know? I mean, just the, everything about how how this movie sets up its world is is not near perfect. Basically perfect. Um, mm-hmm. I'll talk about uh, Bradley Whitford and, and Richard Jenkins, our, our, our two... <laughs> sort of main characters maybe i mean are they i mean you've got you've got they're they're kind of the protagonist and of course the um uh you know uh the, the 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 people that are getting killed essentially you know are kind of the protagonist as well but you're really following mm-hmm. everything uh from uh from from our from our two uh office workers point of view talk about their their performance yeah um so those guys are great. Those guys, if if they aren't intended to be the stars <laughs> of the show, uh, they definitely are. They definitely rob kind of the <laughs> kind of the starring roles from any other characters, uh, just because their characters, you know, their characters are oddly likable um, to the point where. Even after you get, you know, further into the movie and you're figuring out that they're orchestrating um, all of these events to um, to kill these kids, um, they're still they still maintain um, a kind of charisma about them, 
all throughout the entire film, um, uh, which is really, really impressive. Um, and as you said earlier, um, they serve their roles as kind of um, dispensing um, the lore and the world building um, um, in Cabin in the Woods. And, they, and they're able to do that in ways that feel very, very um, natural uh, and unintrusive. Um, things like that. Um, you know, I think my two favorite examples of their scenes is um, is one after the um, after they go into the cellar and these scenarios kind of decided. Um, they go back up, um, and the kids are like listening to some uh, hip hop songs and like they're dancing and all that, and then <laughs> and the scene cuts back. To them in the lab or the control center or whatever you want to call it, um, and they're dancing as well. They're yeah. doing their own dance, and it's just it's just a really quick snap back to them. But like it just it just establishes you know the the tone of where those characters are um, at that at that moment. It really establishes them as like as these goofy kind of bro-y type characters with each other um and it's great and then on uh, the other uh, the other scene that always comes back to me really the sequence of scenes that always comes back to me with those two characters is um every reference they make to the um similar operation that's happening in japan um i love when they talk about <laughs> the operation in japan because obviously it's a very on the nose reference to the fact that you know um japanese horror um, um is often very consistent um it's often very effective in what it does and just um and just like they're the kind of like sportsman like um, competitive type of contempt they have for the people in Japan for how how good they are at doing this job, uh, coupled with just the utter hatred and pure vitriol they suddenly have for them when the operation of Japan goes south is just is just really really uh, just really really great. Um, it's a great sequence, but um, yeah, this one. I wanted to talk about um, uh, just kind of the way that the movie dispenses information, like you said, and how uh, the world building um, is handled in Cabin in the Woods. Because I think this is something that a lot of recent horror films have tried to do and have done um, just a vastly inferior job to how they were able to do it in Cabin in the Woods. Um, the film series that comes to mind or the movie uh, specifically um, that comes to mind is uh, is the first Haunting film. And I know I everyone by that. I, I, I was getting ready to say, say it with him, everybody. And, and I know everyone by now is kind of tired of hearing me crap on the Conjuring franchise. But it is a really good example of this point because you watch the first Conjuring film and I know Conjuring now is like it established as like some some great horror expanded universe thing they got going on or whatever but um the way that information and world building is dispensed in cabin in the woods in very 
passive, relaxed, very um, organic ways um, can be like starkly contrasted with how it's done in The Conjuring. You watch the first Conjuring film, within like 10 minutes into The Conjuring, you're just like shoved into a room of weird, creepy stuff the Warrens have. And like they go into this total soliloquy about, oh, this is the Annabelle doll. This is one of the most dangerous things that is in this room. This is one of the most strangest and supernatural cases we've ever had. And it, it keeps popping up. And like you leave the scene, you're just like, oh, well, I wonder if they're planning an Annabelle spinoff anytime soon. <laughs> like it's just, it's very in your face. And it's very much just like, this is what you need to know. Warrants have been at this for a while. They got rooms and rooms of spooky stuff going on. Whereas Cabin in the Woods is just very passive. It's very relaxed. It it trusts the audience to kind of understand where it's headed. And I think that's something that um, a lot of movies don't do a good job with, but um, a lot of horror films specifically uh, could really stand to learn a lot from how they do it. Well, what, what's great, Al, is the very thing you're talking about. So for me, most horror movies, even ones I like, um, typically follow a very similar progression, like um, Sinister, which I think is a pretty good horror movie. I don't know if you heard or not, but apparently it's scientifically the scariest horror movie of all time. I didn't read the uh, yeah. scientific study. Yeah. I, I would that. have issues with that. I really like Sinister. I think Sinister is very scary. Uh, I think Sinister is really creepy and does things very well. I don't know if it's scientifically the scariest movie I've ever seen. But even a movie like Sinister follows a pretty linear progression where it's what's happening, what's happening, someone tells you what's happening, fall out. And what's interesting is Cabin in the Woods makes fun of that very trope with Mordecai. The Mordecai scene, outside of, the, outside of when Japan uh, falls apart, the Mordecai scene might be my favorite scene in the whole movie mm-hmm. because of how on the nose it is. Uh, you know, and just the general idea of, you know, like, you know, him just him, him calling him up and, you know, being put on speakerphone and just, you know, you know, uh, it's, it's uh, you know, Hadley, uh, Bradley Whiffer's character is like, oh, can you can you take a message? Can you just like, we don't want to talk to this guy, <laughs> you know, and like he's just on there, you know, like the lambs have been led to the slaughter. And later on that but that 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 concept is so integral to the horror movies that they even use that as an opportunity to, to explain, you know, the, the deeper levels of what they are doing. You know, they even use it explains like, look, they, these people, you know, the, the kids we've chosen, yeah, they've been chosen, but they have to make all the decisions themselves. So that's why Mordecai is so important. Mordecai basically is standing there telling them like, you're all going to die and they still decide to do it. And, you know, and every, you know, and, and I mean, they, they play on that trope, so well that like you know because i mean how how many times have you been watching a horror movie where someone has driven up to a gas station or something like that and you're just going why do you just why are you why are you even there like why 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 would you even do this you know and they play with that concept and use it to even explain even more of the world that they are building that to me is so brilliant. It, it, it's, it's one of the most brilliant things they do, that even the concepts that we're used to, they use that to make things deeper uh, into their own world. Um, 
So, so yeah, I, I, uh, I agree with you. I think the way they, they, they tell, uh, the, the way they dispense information is very, very organic and, uh, it just makes sense with how the movie works. Um, and it also really works on another side. So you've got Marty. So, so our five characters are Dana, who is our, our redheaded, uh, kind of our protagonist, the, the redheaded girl. Uh, you've got Marty, who is the stoner character. You've got Holden, who uh, they they call him the the scholar in in this, and like I don't I I don't understand how how he's scholarly. I don't know. Uh, it seems like uh, Chris Hemsworth character Kurt is more scholarly than he is, and then I can't remember is the the blonde girl's name is Julie, right? Um, Jules. Yeah, yeah Jules. that's what they call her. Yeah. Okay, so you've got these five characters. Okay. And what's interesting is when the movie starts, they're not archetypal characters. Mm. And one of the things that they explain within within what they're doing, you know, as they explain go on, they have to make them into the archetypal characters. Yep. So Dana, you know, takes the place as the as the virgin, you know, because she's the final girl. You know, and one of the things they talk about very and that they're careful about doing is, you know, it doesn't matter if the virgin dies, you know. Um, as long as she's the last one alive, you know, so even the concept of the final girl they're, they're riffing on right there, you know, which is something we talked about Friday the 13th, um, you know, and, and this idea that, you know, the, the pure girl is the one that's going to be last. Okay. Even though, you know, like there's this really, there's a really kind of funny scene where like, you know, Dana and Holden are making out on the couch or whatever. And and she she says I've never and then she's and then she kind of pauses and goes I don't mean I've never you know and it's, it's just like this really like funny like and, and you know you're they're even wondering why they're saying the things that they're saying mm-hmm. and it's all this subliminal subliminal uh, um, you know messaging that's getting them to do what they're supposed to do um, so so the so Al you are once again the horror expert okay their concept of archetypes okay. Are they being fair with their with their archetypes and how horror movies are typically set up? Is this a you know is this a, a fair assessment or you know is this like maybe not as realistic with with most horror movies that you've uh, that you've come across? Um, no, no, I think it, um, I think the archetypes that, that they've come up with and are using for the narrative, I think um, there's there's plenty of evidence and plenty of examples um, in past horror films, especially in slasher um, films that really um, support those kind of archetypes. Um, Something that you bring up is that, you know, these are not, um, these are not good fits for the stereotypes that um, they're trying to have. Uh, Right. Um, You know, um, Kurt, who's supposed to be, you know, the athlete, the, the jock type of cool, guy jock kind of character and stuff you know they, they talk about how he's a major in sociology and he mm-hmm. knows and he knows exactly the books uh, that uh that dana is reading he knows exactly the kind uh you know he paid enough attention in class to know the the profs uh, specific tastes and familiarity with different kinds of books um, on the subject and things like that um and that's just kind of an example of um, how it's a really genius design 
um, because they are trying to basically what they're doing is the whole idea behind the cabin in the woods is that they're trying to create a simulation of a horror film and they're trying to control as many variables as possible with the people in the simulation to make sure the simulation goes right. That's like the central idea of what the guys in, in mission control and the lab and stuff, that's what they're trying to do. Um, and very early on, you can see that, um, especially if this is your second or third time watching it, um, that there are more variables with the people in the simulation than these guys originally thought or had planned for. Uh, there's a lot of scenes where those stereotypes are very clearly um, not adhered to. Um, uh, the Harbinger himself in the film, uh, whenever he calls, he calls those guys, he tries to tell them, he's just like, these are not the typical you know, stereotypes we usually get. The, the fool, the stoner guy, he was about to like confront me and fight me uh, because I was rude to his friend. And that is not something we're used to because that doesn't fit those kind of stoner partier types of people who we've seen in other horror films. Um, you know, you have the jock who's actually very smart. Um, you have um, uh, the final girl who's usually associated with purity and virginity who um, who just got out of having an affair with a professor that yeah, you learn early right. on in the movie. <laughs> um, yeah. Something that's not usually considered to be a very pure, virginal type of thing to do. Um, you know, you even have have jewels, and this is something I didn't really pick up on the last time I watched it, but I picked up on it this time. Um, the relationship between the characters Jules and, and Kurt, um, it's portrayed, uh, when it's shown to be natural and organic, it's portrayed to be a very wholesome relationship. You know, he's very... He's very... They full flirtations with each other, but, like, he's very protective of her. She's... You know, she's able to have um, good, thoughtful conversations with him and the other uh, male characters without it becoming some weird kind of flirtatious territorial thing until, of course, you know, the guys in the lab are able to interfere with all that. Uh, But even um, those types of tropes aren't really adhered to. And something I really like about those uh, those variables uh, with the characters, if you will, is that, um, and I've told this to a couple of people when we talk about um, Cabin in the Woods, and I kind of get weird looks, but Cabin in the Woods is a really good depiction of the problems with human behavioral science, right? When you try to have these experiments with human subjects or human participants, um as a scientist, one of the things you try to do in your research is you try to control all the variables that you can. Um, and that's exactly what the guys in the lab um, are trying to do. They're trying to control as many of the variables with these characters as they can. Um, but you can't always predict what human beings are going to do. You can't always predict what personality traits they might have. You can't always predict the, the various thoughts and whims they might have. Um, as a experiment or as a study is going on. Uh, this is a 
classic problem for anyone who's tried to do psychological research with human beings. Um, and I always talked about uh, Cabin in the Woods uh, whenever I was um, an undergrad and also in my grad school program as a really good example to show that, like, you know, these are the problems that you face when you try to predict human behavior, when you try to to control the variables within a human being's personality or or spirituality or or whatever it might be, because human beings are complicated and are very unpredictable. And as somebody who's done a lot of psychological research in his life, uh, that it was always a really cool parallel um, I saw in Cabin in the Woods that uh, kind of bears uh, uh, some discussion and bringing it up. Yeah, you. Uh, yeah, you can't. I mean, that I I don't think that's that weird at all. I mean, because this is in a lot of ways a. I mean, the way it's framed, or you would know this more than I would. It's framed almost as a as a. Um, what am I trying to say? Um, not a clinic. Or well, almost like a clinical trial in a lot of ways. Mm. Or almost seems. It, I mean, you would know where now if I'm using that wrong. So tell me if I am. But it's almost framed that way. You know, you've got your, you know, you you put people in a situation, see how they react. Because of course, right. the point of this is how they're reacting is what's apparently pleasing whoever whoever the the gods are. Okay. Right. Um. You know, and which is why certain story beats have to have to happen. But I, here's here's one thing that I'm gonna add to that. Okay, because one thing I'm really I really one thing that takes me out of of movies and really anything really quickly. And, and at this point, honestly, like video games too. Okay. Because I think video games are becoming such a, a such a strong storytelling medium, uh, that, that bad writing will take me out of a, out of, out of something I'm experiencing really, really quickly. Um, so like, you know, my favorite example of this and not to, not to track this anymore. It needs to, uh, you know, cause I know I, I'm very careful with this show. Um, because I know it means something to some people, even though I think it is dangerous. But like on Thirteen Reasons Why, there's this scene where I can't remember any of the characters' names because they don't matter, honestly. But like the main character and the main boy character are working at the theater together, and there's a point where the main boy character makes this statement about Han Solo, and the main girl character says, "Oh, so you're a super nerd." Because he mentioned Han Solo, you know the <laughs> most the most famous the, uh, the one of the main characters in the most famous American movie in history. Okay, <laughs> he's a super nerd, and it's just that kind of lazy writing. And and what and the, I, I I say that to say this: this movie could have gone because this movie has a has a lot of places it needs to go. So you could have cut out basically all of your, but pretty much all of your character building that happens within the first 20 minutes of this movie, if you wanted to, you know, because the only thing it adds to is to the characters, but it really doesn't add to the story. But you would have had a more hollow experience. And my favorite example of that is you were talking about characters that don't follow, you know, don't, don't follow the norm that they're supposed to follow within this movie. You know, Kurt's a genius. We don't really learn much about Holden, but he, you know, he's, he's, he's not a scholar. You know, Dana... The virgin, you know, is, you know, having an affair with uh, with a professor. But, like, the first time you see Jules in this movie, the first thing you learn about her, she's recently dyed her hair blonde. 
and she's, you know, talking about it, and she's going like, but it's fabulous, right? It's fabulous. And then she goes, tell me it's fabulous. Say fabulous quick because I'm starting to get, and like she's actively worried. Like she's getting ready to have a breakdown that she's made a big mistake. Never, ever see that out of any of the quote-unquote, and I'm using the word they use near horror characters in horror movies. And it's just a real, like, real short scene that tells you that this character is not going to follow the the role that's been set for her. You know, she's not a, you know, she, she, she's, she's not just, or she's not supposed to be just the pretty girl that gets killed, you know? And so, I mean, just that that kind of writing is really impressive to me because, and they, they maintain that all the way through. <laughs> Marty is a fantastic character for a lot of reasons. Uh, you know, basically, I mean, the, there's there's something funny about the fact that because they, you know, he, he changed, you know, his marijuana supply because the entire reason that he's able to see through everything that's happening. <laughs> there's something funny about that. Um but there's also a great scene where, and I'm getting ahead of, we're getting ahead of the story here. But when Marty comes back and he saves, he saves uh, Dana, and like they find the the elevator, and you know, and it like there's he's got the zombie in pieces on the ground, and he just he's looking down at the ground, and he just goes, "I had to dismember him with a trowel," and he looks up at Dana and goes, "How has your day gone?" And it, it's just it's just a really like. <laughs> And it's a funny moment, but it's also a very real moment. And that's really hard to pull off. Um, like I said, Drew Goddard is the only movie I've seen that he's done. He's always only done whether a movie was uh, uh, Bad Times at, uh, at the Casino at uh, El Royale, or the, I think, is that right? At Bad Times El Royale, yeah. which is also a Chris Hemsworth vehicle, by the way. Um, but, uh, it, that's a, that's another movie that has a lot of these really great interactions, really great writing. Um, that's, that's not just, you know, funny for the sake of funny or, you know, or they're just to move the plot along. It all feels very organic and it feels like actual people having actual discussions, you know, yeah. and acting as you would expect them to act in this crazy situation. Um, I do want to, I, I want to move. Okay. So, you know, like I said, we've kind of gotten ahead of ourselves here. Okay. But like the, um, go, I'm sorry, you, something, Al. Um, oh no. Yeah. So, um, I did want to say you brought up the things, um, that, um, your director Drew Goddard, um, has done. Um, I just wanted to give him a shout out real quick, uh, because he hasn't directed a ton of stuff. You're right. Uh, he did Cabin in the Woods, and he did Bad Times at the El Royale. Um, how Daredevils at some point. Um, however, he um, his writing um, um, portfolio, if you will, um, is extremely impressive, uh, both in horror as well as just kind of genre related stuff in general. Um, basically, y'all, if if you are a nerd of any sort. Um, you have watched something that Drew Goddard wrote. Um, he wrote he wrote um, a bunch of episodes of Buffy the Vampire Slayer with Joss Whedon. Um, he wrote a bunch of episodes of Angel. He wrote a bunch of episodes of Alias. He wrote a ton of episodes of Lost. And then he wrote some episodes of Daredevil, um, The Good Place, and The Defenders. Then he was also a writer on um, all of the Cloverfield movies, 
He was a writer on uh, World War Z. He contributed to uh, to Deadpool two. Um, so basically, if you're if you're into nerd stuff, if you're into fandom in general, um, you have probably um, ingested something that Drew Goddard has written uh, because he's written a lot and his his quality is pretty consistent uh, yeah. throughout what he does. Yeah, and you you can kind of tell that. I mean, you know, he's he's um, of where this movie goes. He has a he has a wide breadth of knowledge um, of what's of what's uh, of of what's out there in the horror genre. Um, I did want to uh, uh, you know discuss. Um, so we've got a you know they they get to the cabin. We've got a pretty pretty basic uh scene even within the cabin uh it seems like everything in this cabin is designed to scare you off uh which you know once again <laughs> i yeah i'm just i'm just trying to put myself in you know if you know friends uh you know shoes out if we ever go anywhere and we ever see a picture or a painting like what's in this cabin we're probably i'm just gonna let you know that you're either coming with me or i'm leaving you <laughs> uh, that's the only thing that's happening. Uh, well, but I guess, but the, I guess I'll have to cancel the trip I had planned for us to go to Pawnee, Indiana. But that's fine. yeah. There you go. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, because it does look like that. That looks like a Pawnee. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but the um, but just the the picture the the two way mirror that's just there uh, has really has no no reasoning there just to creep you out. Okay. And adds to this concept, once again, I've kind of hinted at, but uh, Hadley and, and Ritterson, their point here is they're, they're kind of the game master, so to speak, the directors of what's happening. And their thing is, is that they have to make, you know, all these, all of them have to make the choice to do what they do, okay? Um, because there's a sense of, um, punishment that's happening. Mordecai, you know, talks about, you know, punishing them for their sins and all that stuff. So there's a sense of punishment that has to happen. So this movie, which I, like I said, I wouldn't say it's a deconstruction, but I do think it's very meta. Mm -hmm. Uh, well, I mean, I don't just like that. It is very meta. That's it's the, it's the, it's the classical definition of meta. Okay. So this movie, but it, it, it does bring up this idea of, punishment of um you know of uh, judgment and things like that there is a and, and i'm asking you this okay the being the psych guy oh, there boy. is an element of readings of horror movies that we watch these horror movies to see people get punished the best example of this is saul i mean there's no mm. If ands or buts about it. everybody in Saul deserves to get pretty much everything they. I mean, by the time you get to Saul too, and it's just all you know, it, it, it's the dregs of society. You know, um, you know Saul is is real big on the whole point of that is you know he's he's help quote unquote helping people who have wasted their lives, and uh, you know for whatever reason. Okay, that's his thing. So that's the big. I mean, that's taking this probably to the nth degree. Okay. But I'm asking you, is there an element of, of the, you know, we, we kind of discussed this with Ned and, and Friday the 13th, um, but we didn't go all the way. Is there an element of watching a horror movie 
where you are there to watch people get punished. You know, what do you, cause, cause that's, that is a, that, that's, I mean, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a huge part of this movie is that something has judged humanity and therefore humanity must, must be punished for it. So is there an element of that in, in horror movies? Do you think people watch horror movies to watch people get punished? What do you think, Al? Right. Well, I think there's definitely an element of that. Um, I mean, in, um, it's highlighted in Cabin in the Woods. It's one of the things about horror films that's been talked about all the time is um, kind of almost um, the, the viewer's tendency to kind of um, call out and, and almost um, do a parody of just the really bad decisions, <laughs> the really bad choices that characters in horror films make, right? Um, uh Actually, just thinking about Cabin in the Woods, it actually reminds me of uh, of an ad for shoot. It's some kind of insurance company, but um, um, it basically shows a group of young adults, um, yeah, and it's now. like, okay, there you go, yeah. And yeah. so it's basically a Geico ad that shows a group of young adults and like um, a Texas Chainsaw type of situation and stuff, and they're all just kind of shouting out various bad ideas for them to do and one of the girls is just like why don't we just get in the why don't we just get in the running car <laughs> and all of them are just like no no it's there's no way let's go hide over there in the shed by the chainsaws like it, it, it's become you know it's become a, a stereotype of horror films or characters in horror films that's that's bled into like the pulp culture of of you know auto insurance like <laughs> advertisement <laughs> like, um, it's one of those things so in a way i think um that theme is definitely there to a certain point where you want to see people get punished and that they're being punished for the bad choices they made they're being kind of you know physically and spiritually held accountable for um, the paths they took to get them to this situation, um, ignoring all the warning signs and things like that. Um, there's also um, a more classic um, interpretation of this idea of, of um, punishment um, in horror films. Um, it's often credited um, to um, to Friday the 13th and like a uh, majority of things that are credited to Friday the 13th it actually has its origins in Halloween a couple of years earlier where uh, where um, uh, this idea that the slasher figures in slasher films are there as kind of a punishment to the um, debauchery and the express sexuality of, of teenagers or college students or whoever it is that they kill in their films um, and so you have that element as well, that kind of traditional interpretation of um, these horror films as far as um, um, the, th uh, the fates of the characters being a form of punishment for their, their, um, their banked up morality, I guess you could say, um, in some cases. But um, I, think, I think it could be an element that's a little bit overblown. I think... Um, I think a much more significant reason why people have such a for films is that um, one, I think we underestimate the appeal um, 
almost the universal appeal for people to um, to be scared, um, to have that um, experience where you're scared by something, you get caught uh, out of an adrenaline rush, you kind of you want to kind of wrestle with your own thoughts and personal demons about why something scares you and why other things don't and things like that. I think that's a really underestimated um, theme that comes up and why we watch horror films. Um, I think the idea um, is, is getting a bit uh, um, psychological and cerebral in a way. But I think there's also a potential argument to be made that um, the reason why we watch horror films is that um, they kind of form um, a symbol for us that, you know, these things that scare us um, by choosing to watch them and by choosing to stick with them and root for the survivor, sometimes even root for the antagonist, is our way of overcoming the things uh, that scare us ourselves. Um, now, I'll admit that gets kind of I can wind it um, um, in some ways, but um, I think it's an interesting argument. So, yeah, I think the theme of punishment in watching horror movies is is definitely there. It's definitely something to be considered, but I think sometimes it's a little bit overblown. Um, but I think it's I think it gets an oak. I think it gets a respectable um, a discussion and treatment. I'm um, I'm in cabin in the woods though. Yeah, it it definitely does. I think um, you know that that a lot of the a lot of the the ideas of how people watch horror movies uh, happens. I, I do think you know because you have that moment. You know, uh, well, I, I I I do want to discuss this. Okay, one of my favorite scenes is when they finally go into the basement, mm-hmm. and you've just got all of this creepy stuff that is just screaming don't mess with me okay right. like i mean just everything you know you've got the uh uh of course you know the the you know hadley you know uh, he has the conch in his hand you know just one more minute and we would have had the mermans you know uh <laughs> which is just hilarious to me um but of course they end up picking up this diary and he starts reading from this diary this horrible stuff and at one point <laughs> <laughs> one point marty is just like can we not like you know and, 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 and what's great about marty is is marty is and I, I love it when movies do this it's very hard to have a a character that is an end for the audience without making it obvious that they're an end for the audience but that's what marty is marty is vocalizing everything that you know is happening which makes it him an interesting character because you got to add to the top of it that he's starting to lose himself because he's just getting higher and higher as the night goes by. So like he's screaming like, "Can we not?" Like is this, you know? And then when, you know, and at one point he's he's you know because he's the because he's high. This is the genius of this movie. Because he's high, he's the only one that's able to fend off all of the stuff that's making them stupid. All the gases, all the libido stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, everything that's making them stupid. Because he's high, he's the only one that's able to fend that off. So then you get that other scene where, where she's getting ready to read Latin, and he's like, all right, I'm drawing the sand, lie in the sand on Latin. We do not need to read Latin. Because, <laughs> Al, as you know, nothing good has ever come from being read in Latin, okay? 
you know, in history, you know, nothing good has ever come, you know, from being read in Latin from an old dusty book. Okay. <laughs> just, it's just something horrible is going to happen. Um, but we do, we do get that scene and we get our, our characters, uh, our killers who are the, uh, what's their names? Uh, um oh shoot the um, I can't remember I can't remember the names uh, but um, I do remember I do remember the the one lady on the betting pool being like well I had, I had zombies and he said you know <laughs> and House like yes you had zombies but you did have zombie redneck zombie torture family they're completely different species it's kind of like the difference between a, a well and a and a sea well you know or like a you know I mean it's it's, it's like you know it's it's just it I mean. It's just genius. Like everything yeah. about that is genius. Okay. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, but so, so, you know, at that point in the movie starts to become kind of a stereotypical um, horror movie, but the way they keep it from being a stereotypical horror movie is that once again, we are with Hadley and Rittenhouse during the entire time. So, so, you know, the, the directors, um, you know, that are, that are, that are making all this stuff happen um, you know, with, uh, with, you know, Jules getting killed, um, you know, with, you know, Kurt going out the way he does, um, you know, Marty basically you know, almost getting killed. Um, you get to have this very, this, this interesting, you know, kind of mini horror movie within there. And there is an interesting part. There's a, cause like, you know, and once again, you know, Al as in within horror movies, you know, Typically, there is a nude scene at some point. Mm-hmm. And so we do get a nude scene in this movie. But this was an interesting one because there's almost like for... And, and this is what I'm talking about with the writing in this movie. So Hadley and Rittenhouse, you know, have, have these moments of very laissez-faire, you know, kind of commentary on everything. Um, but the doctor, the doctor that's in charge of the chem, the chemical stuff, tells the guard at one point, like you know, y- you know that that's how th- they do that so they can cope. You know, that's how they cope with this. And there's this really, you know, interesting moment that's happening with you know while um, Kurt and Jules are you know getting ready to do whatever they're going to do in the forest, and we we know as the audience we know that the zombies are coming, and they know the zombies are coming. And while it's happening, instead of having this scene that is like gratuitous nudity, and I mean it probably is to an extent, but like where do you, where do you have the scene where it's just that you have this really quiet moment between the directors where they are you know almost in there's definitely a sadness, but there's almost like this you know religious experience as happening you know and they explain they explain to the guard you know because at one point i think i think it's rittenhouse who says you know you know go on take your top off we got to get this rolling you know and and the guard is like why does it matter if she takes her top off and it's like you know we're not the only ones watching this and there's almost this like weird kind of you know weird kind of moment where it's quiet and religious and you know, and then you know, Jules dies, and you have this like weird prayer that happens, you know. Mm-hmm. And so, like, there's a there's a real you know that to, to me it, it was a really interesting part of this, you know, part of this movie where they they take something that we've seen in, I mean, out in hundreds of horror movies. Like, there's mm-hmm. always you know a, a a poor a poor actress who's trying to get 
you know, her first job, you know, and she's in the horror movie and, you know, and the, you know, it's like, well, you got to take your top off, you know, to get this $20,000 payday or whatever, you know, mm-hmm. and we've seen this, you know, 500,000 times. What Cabin in the Woods does, it almost frames it. And I almost kind of wonder if they're framing it almost as the, you know, sad ex- exploitative moment that it is. You know, right, because right. like I, I, I don't really like. Here's the thing: like I don't want to, you know, like I, I, I don't want to make. Uh, you know, I was. I think we were very careful so far, you know, and I don't want to make any type of you know judgments on horror movies for for you know. I mean, I, I think there's some uh, we've discussed. I think are unethical and things like that, but like I don't want to make any judgments on nudity in movies or anything like that. Okay, but what I do want to say is that there's a lot of points where you know that there are ex- exploitation shots. And what mm-hmm. Cabin in the Woods does is takes this exploitation shot, this moment where, you know, like, the story beat is now, you know, you see a topless girl, that's what the story beat is, and they take it and they do something else with it, which mm-hmm. I think is interesting. Did, did, do you, I mean, were you, I mean, did, did, did that scene, you know, did, is that tracking with you? Did you, did that scene hit you the same way or, you know? Sure, you know, yeah. Like, yeah, absolutely. Um I think one thing that um, it kind of it kind of does as well. In addition to all that, is a little bit before that, where um, where Jules and, and Kurt are in the woods and things like that, and um, and that scene is is kind of just starting. Um, it goes back to a shot of the lab, and you have just like this small crowd of employees at the lab who are up front and just kind of staring at the screen and kind of like hoping and um, and waiting for that part of the, of the, of the story to happen. And um, I think even from there, the movie is kind of taking um, an opportunity to kind of um, point a finger at the audience a little bit and that um, kind of identifying that because after that happens and Jules is just like, um, you know, I'm cold or whatever the line is, um, then um, the two directors are just, are just like, okay, everybody, let's go. You know, your your appetites or your weird perverted needs or whatever they say, you know, um, you've got actual jobs to do. This isn't about that and stuff. And it's kind of, um, I kind of interpreted that part of the scene um, in addition to kind of subverting expectations, but the more kind of serious um, religious kind of tone it takes afterwards, I, th- I think even that first part of the scene kind of takes an opportunity to point a finger at the audience a little bit and just be kind of like, um, you know, you see, you see all of you guys out there who who sit and watch a horror movie and in the context of these terrible things happening to these people, you're just like, oh boy, I. Hope I see boobs soon. Like, these people are you. Like, this is you. Like, this is you not realizing that there are, like, <laughs> that there are more important things at stake, even in the context of, like, a slasher movie. Like, <laughs> like this is all about you. And so um, I thought even just <laughs> doing that was um, impressive as well, just kind of taking a moment to kind of um, almost shame the audience in a way. Of just like, have you have you ever felt the same way? Well, like, it's not cool, man. Like, <laughs> like you know, these aren't, you know, this isn't a, 
this isn't a snuff house for you to go and get and get your jollies and stuff. You know, there's there's more important things at stake, and I was just impressed with that part of it as well. Yeah, it it really is a um, it, and I yeah, we'll we'll toward of course at the end of the movie, I think it's really meta when on on that concept, um, you know, of of audience participation, so to speak. Uh, and we'll we'll definitely discuss that a little more. But I agree. I think I think there is something something more happening there, definitely. And uh, and it's another example of them taking a a horror beat and adding it to the world they have built. Um, you know, af- of course, after all, you know, that's where that's where Jules dies, um, and of course, that's where everything seems to go downhill. You know, Marty supposedly dies. Uh, Kurt <laughs> tries to tries to jump, uh, <laughs> and he hits the the invisible fence. There, there's a really interesting, and this is the only part of the movie that isn't addressed, is why the electrical uh, why that cave in didn't happen. Because later on, they do say there was so, you know there was a misinformation from upstairs, and we 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 find out what's downstairs. We never find out what's upstairs, uh, which is uh, you know. Um, which is you know interesting to me because there seems to be something in between the cabin and where they're at. Um, so uh, uh, yeah, that there's there's they 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 never they never address that. But there is a really excellent scene though, and you talk about a horror beat because one of the things uh, this is it, I think they kind of borrow this from Psycho. <clears throat> Psycho, the first time you watch it, if you don't know the ending. The character you end up rooting for is Norman Bates for the vast majority of that movie, mm-hmm. um, just because he's the character that you know he he is the protagonist for the most part of that movie because that movie's framed as he's trying to keep his mother from getting in trouble and his mm-hmm. mother does bad things and you know like yes yeah, it's, it's horrible but you feel bad for Norman and you're like you know because you know every you know every you know, every boy loves his mother, you know, and so like, you know, you, you just feel bad for him. And so, so you're watching him cover up and like, there's this really great scene where he's, uh, he's driven the car into the swamp and it's sinking. And at one point it looks like it's not going to sink all the way, you know, and like he holds his breath. And the first time you're watching it, you hold your breath and finally it sinks all the way. Well, they do an interesting thing with this in Cabin in the Woods too, where this cave-in hasn't happened, and you're in a you're in a quandary because you want your characters to get away, you want the, the characters to get away. At the same time, you want the director to complete what he's supposed to do because by this point, you know you've come to realize that you know they have to do something because or something really bad is going to happen to the world. You don't. I don't think they've revealed the, the full judgment yet. Um, but, you know, you're appeasing something. So if you don't pull this off, you know, something bad is going to happen to the rest of the world. Uh, at this point, Japan has screwed up, you know, <laughs> which, by the way, is my favorite moment in the entire movie. <laughs> when they're singing and then that little girl goes, now Kiko's spirit is in this happy frog and it pulls out. <laughs> To just a mountain of f words from that guy, <laughs> I, I it I laughed so hard in, in the theater, man. I it, it is it's one of my favorite scenes in any movie ever, just because you know I mean you just got these like really happy Japanese 
you know, school killed her, you know, is holding this little frog, you know, it, it's, it's hilarious. Um, but you got this really interesting scene though, after that, where he's racing to get down there to fix the cave in, they're racing to get through the tunnel and you don't know really who to root for. You know, you don't know, you know, you know, this movie for all of its silliness does a really good job of making you care about the characters mm. um, and pulling you in two different directions in that moment. Um, because, you know, you do like Hadley, you do like Rittenhouse, um, you know, um, you know, they, you, you do care about them because they are fully formed characters. You know, they're not just butchers, so to speak. Mm. Um, at the same time, you know, you care about these, these kids that have gotten in a, in a very bad situation and you don't know who to root for. It's a really interesting scene. Um, uh, and it's a really it's a really good moment where uh, the 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 way it's paced, uh, you know, he's he's running down the hallways, you know, you know, Kurt is trying to drive this this rambler <laughs> through a what looks like the eye of the needle, you know, at the same mm-hmm. time that he's running down the hallway trying to get there. And it's, it's a really intense scene. Uh, they do get the cave in. And that's, of course, where Kurt hits the screen. And that's where, you know, everything is supposedly. uh revealed to Holden and Dana. Um, but, I, you know, what, you know, the, uh, can you, you know, that, that scene is, is this moment where, uh, you know, you're rooting for the supposed good guy and the bad guy at the same time, you know, and I, I, I spoke about Psycho. Are there any other movies you can think of that, uh, horror movies that kind of pull you in two directions like that? Mm. Yeah, that's a, a good question yeah it it almost kind of reminds me of um of just kind of the general um trend in the 80s and early 90s where um a lot of the slasher antagonists um um as like their franchises went on um you know some things happened where they got um a bit more backstory um, you know, the, um, their victims were characterized in such a way where they were even more like ridiculous and irritating and annoying and awful people that like, you kind of root for the slasher to kill them. Um, in some, in some ways kind of going back to like, uh, the, the idea of punishment as kind of a recurring theme in horror. Um, I think I texted you at one point this month, um, uh, my wife and I went through all of the Jason films because she hadn't seen any of them. And um, I think it's part five where um, it opens up to like two guys like <laughs> do break and entering of a graveyard to like dig up Jason's corpse and just kind of like desecrate it and like author it for no real reason other than they were bored and like i kind of texted you when we were at that one where i was just like yeah i forgot this happens they really like you know if there was anybody who'd like deserve to die in the opening scene of a horror movie it's, it's probably these guys who are just going around desecrating the corpse of a of a known almost supernatural serial killer <laughs> like you know um and like so that's i know what that reminds me of it's just kind of a general push um, in the 80s and 90s. And sometimes it happens today still where the um, antagonist of a horror franchise might get 
um, a bit more backstory to make him seem a bit more empathetic or, um, you know, they'll kind of flanderize um, the more annoying characters in the movie so that you almost root for the slasher himself instead of um, his victims throughout the film. But um, uh, yeah, that's what that reminded me of. Yeah, it regardless, it's a it's a fantastic scene. Um, you know, they uh, you know, there's there's just a lot of fantastic scenes in this. Um, you know, and it is it is, that is kind of a push and pull. You know, with with horror movies, is uh, you know, you you go to see the horror movie, you know, really to um, experience the killer more than the person that's getting killed in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and that's, that's kind of the push and pull there. It's, that's why it's really hard to have very good characters in horror movies, I think, because a lot of times the, uh, the, I guess the lazy way of writing is just to have them be, you know, really, you know, one cut stereotypical characters that are just kind of there to rack up a body count. Yeah. Uh, you know, Cabin um, in the Woods doesn't really run in that, you know, they don't really play that way. Yeah, um, I'm thinking about it now, and I know I've already brought up um, this one once already this podcast. But um, if y'all can't tell, I'm like a very big fan of Behind the Mask. And um, that's another example, I think, is that um, the way Behind the Mask works is that you spend so much time with um, the slasher antagonist of that film, and um, he's portrayed as such... um, such a charming, charismatic individual that by the time, you know, uh, the final act of the film starts and, like, he's just like, okay, this is a night, this is a night, you know, I, um, I kill these people and um, I go after, you know, my s- survivor girl and things like that, that um, there's a weird, <laughs> there's a weird scene where he's um, saying goodbye to um, to the documentary and a recruit that's been following him and recording him and stuff. And like, they're all like oddly sad that this is the last time they're going to see him again. And <laughs> a couple of them, like even like, like, um, um, kind of like tell him, you know, like, you know, hope, hope it works out. Hope everything goes, <laughs> hope everything goes well for you. When like, they know they're just like, Oh yeah, these are real people. He's going to go after and killed and, and torture in terrible ways. Cause it's just kind of like, but like you kind of get like the feeling cause you spent so much time with the character in that context that even watching the movie, there's like a part of you that peeps out. who's just like, Oh yeah. I, I hope things go really well for Leslie Vernon tonight. Like I hope, <laughs> I hope he pulls this off, but um, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's just an example that came to mind. Yeah, I uh, yeah that that uh, I think you've brought that movie up. At, I think that's the fourth time you brought it up in the in the <laughs> in the podcast. So I mean, you're very very clearly a fan of that movie. Um, we need you know we got to move to the to the sort of coup de gras of this film because mm-hmm. the you know this film, like I said, it's it's going one way, and you <laughs> you know what this film does. I, I will say this, okay. No one in, in history has ever watched this movie and gone, you know, that ending was kind of boring, you know? No, that's ne- I guarantee that's never <laughs> happened. There, it's impossible. Um, because what basically happened, of course, you know, Dana's the final girl. 
uh, Holden is killed while he's driving. Uh, and then, uh, you know, uh, Dana, uh, is the final girl, she's facing down the, the head of the, of the zombie redneck torture family clan. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, Cur- uh, Marty comes back and he's not dead and he is, he survived everything and he's figured out what's going on. He finds an elevator and they take the elevator down and, you know, they get cornered into this place. And they're really lucky because they're in the center of all these elevators. And what you basically find out is that these elevators are rotating, are rotating elevators so that they can bring up whatever monster that is chosen uh, down there. And there's a real great throwaway scene at one point where, when they're bed, when they're doing the betting, uh, where <laughs> he goes, yeah, uh, he someone hands Rittenhouse on me. Goes, I'm not even sure we have one of these. And they're like, Oh, zoology says we do. And he's like, Well, they would know. And so you know, they put it up on the board, and you know, and you get this really interesting scene where, you know, I think there's there's a werewolf, there's a ghost, mm-hmm. there's a ballet dancer with a little ballet dancer girl with like, I mean, you know, like it looks like it it looks like the it looks like they put the the face of a of the thing from Tremors onto a onto a <laughs> ballet dancer's face. I don't know. I wrote really a house to describe it. Uh, you've got a Hellraiser rip, a Pinhead rip, basically uh, there, and you it pans out, and there's all these horrible like you know horror movie icons, basically uh, without you know uh, having to pay any licensing fee. I will say this. I have found, I know for a fact, apparently, if you've ever played Left 4 Dead, in that scene when they pan out, this is just a little little uh, tidbit for you, in that scene where they pan out, you can see the hunter and the boomer from Left mm. 4 Dead in that mm. scene. I found the boomer. I've never seen the hunter. Uh, this last time I watched it, I was trying to find the hunter. I'm going to have to just one day just, you know, pause it on that scene and just see if I can <laughs> see where he's at. <clears throat> but, um... You know, that, that scene, you know, just lets you know how big everything is. And I remember when I watched that scene, I was like, I wonder what they're going to do with that. Because just about every other movie that I can think of would have, you know, you might have seen, you know, maybe the vampire bat get out or maybe the ghosts get out or whatever, you know. Right. Um, Al, what does this movie do? Uh, oh, Oh, Cabin in the Woods just just unleashes all of them. Yeah, just it's it's just open season. Um, and also, um, just real quick, you talking about on the monsters from After Dead? There is a quickly cut to and cut away from um, scene when all of the carnage is happening with all the different um, uh, uh, things in there, the creatures and monsters and stuff. There is a very quick scene. I think it happens on one of these security TV screens um, where um, it's several of um, the... Versus um, from uh, the Silent Hill games um, are in there as well. Um, really? Which I was enjoying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a part where, like, a couple of them are, like, um, they're at, like, uh, I assume it's, like, a table of some sort that, like, they're using 
um, as like an operating table and stuff. And they're in there. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good one. Yeah, I, I've, uh, yeah, there's a, uh, I mean, there's, there's a lot going on. It's hard to really to take it all in, you know. I mean, you've got the, uh, you know, you got the Hellraiser guy. I mean, he's got somebody strung up upside down. You know, you've got the the weird purge family. Uh, you know, that comes out and is like getting ready to set somebody on fire. You know, yeah. I think I think, my, my I think thing, that's a, I think that's a reference to the strangers. I believe. Whatever. Okay. Oh, 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 okay. Well, I, d- I, I just, okay. I just, I just right. say that what because the purge hadn't come out. Oh my Lord. Oh my. Okay. I was wondering, okay. Get, ladies and gentlemen, we made it. Five <laughs> podcasts. Okay. Through four and a half podcasts before we got a pedantic correction. Uh, from Al Mattingly. That, yeah, that, well, that's, that's, that's well done, Al. That's well done. Well, you, you held back I mean, so long for so long. I think I'm, it's a reference to the Strangers. Okay. Well, I'm sorry. I will give you that. I will, it's a reference I, to the Strangers. I mean, you say it's a pedantic comment when, you know, you said it was a reference to a movie that wasn't even out yet. So and I'm once just, again, just okay, saying. Well, it's, 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 there is no, I promise you, there's <laughs> no one that would have watched that if I said, oh, look, it looks like the Purge family that would have gone, that doesn't look at anything at all like the Purge family. <laughs> there's no one that would have watched that and done that. Whatever. Okay. I don't what, yeah, whatever. My favorite kill, I'll, I'll move on. My favorite moment of all of that, because it's out of nowhere, it's an apropos to nothing. Okay. Because I don't even, I can't even think of a horror movie where this would happen. But it's when the unicorn kills the guy. That is my favorite. That that probably that probably is my favorite moment in the entire movie, because at that point in the movie is when you can tell that they were just like, yeah, we're gonna go as far as we can go. We don't even care anymore. Like it's 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 all out in the open, and there's something beautiful about that. Like I mean, I mean, I, I don't know. Like when I when we saw that in theaters, that 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 moment got the biggest laugh of any of them. <laughs> It was a good one. The, yeah. uh, um, but uh, but no that that scene there of the of the of the purging, um, you know, uh, I mean, is has can you think of a of a crazier, you know, grouping of scenes in any horror? I mean, really in any movie. I mean, can you think of anything crazier than that? Man, I I mean, I don't really think so. They're just. There's so much that happens. Um, there's so many references to other. What, what stands out to you, Al? Series that I made. Um, you know, like out of. <laughs> funnily enough, because there's a lot of really good stuff in there, a lot of really good references. Um, but the the monster that gets unleashed that really sticks out to me <laughs> the most, just because I can't really, I can like see what it could be a reference to. But like not in the way that it's so weird is um is like the uh, the giant cobra that gets released and I'm just like well like whoa like that's <laughs> that's just a giant how are they even like housing that in the first place like yeah. if you if you ask me that's the, that's the thing that that person during the bedding scene was asking about was just like oh yeah dude all of my money's on the giant cobra. And they got just like, oh, do we, do we have that? Do we have one of those? Like, yeah. Yeah. And, and, and it might have been because it, it looks because like everything else looks like it's it can come out of when when that when that first when when the first wave comes through, everything else looks like it could come out of there. And that giant cobra just, 
I mean, I, it, it can't be the same size as Oliver because that thing is huge. Um, yeah, and, and I mean, and it, it, it's a standout. I mean, you know, because there's one point where a guy throws uh, someone over a railing and it's down there and just catches him. You know, yeah, it's just, yeah. It, it's just, it is. It's a standout. I also like the murder robot. I don't know if you have, you know, uh, the murder robot is so ridiculous. Uh, I don't even know I, I, what what is that in reference to? Um, oh gosh, I'm not I'm not entirely sure. I might have to it's look. Treated that one like up. Wally, and see the thing is, this movie came out a year after Wally, so I know that's one of the references. Okay, because it's a yellow and gray robot, so you will never convince me that they they didn't do that on purpose. All right, but like <laughs> I, couldn't, I couldn't think of a movie that had a had a murder bot in it like that. Um. Oh. Um, so, um, the Cabin in the Woods, um, uh, and, um, website, um, I looked it up. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, fact-checking boy. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. (laughs) Um, so, uh, the Cabin in the Woods fandom website says that the killer robot is an homage to the protectors from the film Chopping Mall. Which I've now added Chopping Mall to my watch list. Yeah, yeah, we're gonna have to watch that. I've <laughs> never, I've never heard of that. Well, what, what, what the Cobra then? What's the Cobra in Amog too? Um, I will hook that up as well. You, you keep on going. I'll, well, because, I'll let you know when fact checking. Now I'm beginning to wonder, like, you know, if if they took everything from from something else, you know what I mean? Like, just because I mean, like I said, Drew Goddard clearly has a very, very wide range of, uh, of movie knowledge in his head. I mean, there's no way he doesn't. Um, but this movie, I mean, it's, it's, yeah, that, that scene has a lot going for it. And what's great about that scene is, um, the, the design of the scene is really good because, you know, like even when, like when they're, (laughs) when they're, when they're coming out, uh, you know, uh, when they, when they, when uh, Marty and Dana, you know, come out and everything, and now they're, they've decided they're going to try and escape. Um, there's a moment where uh, they're in this hallway, and of course the the vampire bat comes and kills somebody and breaks this this part of the wall, which is what they go through. But like you look down this hallway, and you know, there's there's a like a little girl you know, who's got her back to you and she's singing, you know, uh, hush little baby, don't say a word while she's crawling, you know, while she's just walking down this hallway, very clearly an homage to the ring or something like that. And, you know, and, but, but they never, they never discuss or anything. It's just like, it's just there for like extra set padding, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and, and I was just kind of wondering if like Drew Goddard was like, yeah, this isn't working. Can we get a creepy girl in the corner, you know, real quick <laughs> to make this, this scene work better, you know, because like it, it's, Every everything about those scenes is so dense, uh, with so much happening. Um, you know, I guess it it's it really is a remarkable what they what they did. They weren't just, I mean, yeah, it is. It, it's a it's a you know miasma of of gore, uh, you know, and you know blood and gore and and everything. But all those scenes are just so dense, you know, with what's happening. Uh, and and how they're how they're pulling it off and how everything's shot, 
you know, with everything that, you know, just not that stuff that's just happening in the foreground, but stuff that's happening in the background, you know, you can look at every time you watch it, you notice something different. Um, it really is. Uh, they, they really did go for it. And it's, it's, it's probably one of the, the better scenes in any horror movie I've ever seen. Um, you know, so, uh, yeah, uh, but yeah. Did you find anything out about Mr. Cobra? Al? Uh, yes, I did. So, um, so due to the endeavors of fact checking boy, um, I found that there is, there is some contention within the cabin in the woods fandom as to what this is oh. truly referenced to. So some believe that it is a reference to other giant snakes that have appeared in horror films like Anaconda. Yeah. Um, however, there is a section of cabin in the woods fans, uh, that say that it is actually a, a reference to, um, the giant snake, um, Elusia, uh, from the Capcom Resident Evil games that you fight. Oh, hey, you know, I didn't even think of that. Yeah. So yeah. I think I'm going to align myself with those guys. I think I'm, I'm going to yeah, go with that too. It does <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. It does look like that. Yeah. yeah you're right. Yeah. That, that's pretty, okay. That's, that's pretty good. I, I like that. I like that idea quite a bit. Um, okay, well, let's, you know, we, we get to the point, um, Hadley is taken down by the merman. He finally gets to see the merman. <laughs> it is, it's, it's hard. It's just as horrible as you think it would be. Um, you know, I think the, the, you know, the blood spurting out of the spurt in the merman's back is always a, a quality scene. Uh, you know, just a really, really standout scene. Um, but yeah, uh, you know, Rittenhouse, uh, at one point is stabbed by Dana on the way out, just kind of accidentally. And his last words are, you know, you need to kill him. And that's where the big reveal comes. And, uh, per, uh, the queen herself shows up <coughs> Sigourney Weaver, you know, walks out and I kind of wish like, you know, like they don't really name her, but like, you know, I, I Part of me just kind of wishes like she was just Sigourney Weaver, you know, like just like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. you know, like I've, I've been, I've been in charge of this, you know, for a long time, you know, I, I'm one of the original final girls cause she is, I mean, alien is a sci-fi mm-hmm. horror, but it is a horror movie sure. and, uh, she, uh, she makes perfect sense to be the end point. Um, the ending of this movie, of course, is, you know, basically throws everything in, tells you everything that there are old gods that need to be stated basically uh with blood and so here's where here's here's my opinion okay here's my opinion all right and this is this is this is this is from why i've seen this movie i think six times now every time i watch i get a little more convinced of this okay i personally think the audience is the old gods Mm -hmm. i think that's what the movie's getting at that there's a real concept here of like we have to keep making these horror movies we have to because the audience keeps demanding them and when you look at movie genres that have risen and fallen you know i mean you look at westerns you look at um you know uh, even even the you know b-movie sci-fi boom of the 70s and 80s you look at military movies you know from samurai films films, you know horror movies from the i mean the universal monsters help build what hollywood into what it is 
and they've never gone away. It's the one genre that's never had a slump, really. I mean, you know, you can make a claim it's had had slumps here and there, you know, with, you know, maybe the early 2000s, you know, after Scream and stuff like that. But every single time there's a little slump, something comes along and makes horror movies relevant again, you know? And I mean, I'd say horror movies right now are as relevant as they've ever been. If for no other reason, then you can make a reasonably good one for $10 million and make $150 million on the thing. <laughs> Uh, I mean, that's, I mean, you, once again, you keep bringing up Conjuring, but that's one of the things Conjuring did prove. Conjuring, the first movie cost something like $6 million to make and it went on to make like $500 million. So, you know, one of the reasons horror movies have lasted like they have is they're consistently profitable. But the other thing is, Al, and you know this as well as I would, is if no one was watching these things, they wouldn't get made. Yeah. So I think there is a sense almost at the end of this movie, you know, there's a, there's a meta sense to me. This is how I read it at least. I'm going to ask you how you read it. Um, where this, in this movie where Sigourney Weaver is basically telling us like, you know, this is what is demanded of the audience. You know, the audience demands, you know, that we put out these horror movies that we do these things to sate you know, the old gods of Hollywood, which is the audience, right. you know, and if there was no, and, and, and when we don't do it, <laughs> when we don't do it, there's going to be a rebellion, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and so, you know, what, what, what do you think? Cause there, I do think, you know, even if you don't like my opinion, even if you don't like my opinion, I do think there's messaging at the end of this movie of Sigourney Weaver, you know, there's, there's messaging to the audience. Uh, that's, that's beyond just like, you know, the world building that they have. Um, so there's messaging to it. So, so what do you think the messaging at the end of the movie is? Al? Or do you, or, or may, maybe you disagree. Maybe you don't think there's messaging. What do you think? Um, no, no. Um, um, I like that interpretation that you have of it. Um, yeah, I think it's very good. Um, a very good interpretation of the ending. Um, another inter- interpretation of it that I've seen, I mean, there are some people who just conclude that, like, I don't know, they're just talking about, you know, eldritch, horrific gods who <laughs> who demand sacrifices. They're being very on the nose with it. Um, so there are people who believe that. Um, yeah, I've seen some, I have seen some interpretations that say, you know, the old gods are an allusion to um like the old um of the og um horror film and antagonist of like this highland film era you know of like the old school like um house of the devil and osferatu and things like that i've seen that interpretation as well which is interesting i don't know how much evidence within, within Cabin in the Woods there is for that interpretation, but it's an interesting interpretation. Um, yeah, I think um, um, I think that uh, the messaging is there um, in part f- um, as kind of talking to the horror industry itself um, of saying that, you know, um, this is what is required. These are the traditions and the tropes that the industry um, is founded upon. Um, and, you know, they're, 
that there are ways to show your respect for them and there are ways to kind of put a spin on them and do things a bit differently. Um, and that I think there's also uh, the messaging to the audience as well of, of just like, you know, this is what you all uh, require of your horror films. I, bet. I think that's um, valid as well. Um, I think there's almost, there's a, there's a part towards the end of Cabin in the Woods where um, you don't have to forgive me a bit because this isn't, it's like right there, it's not quite a, a fully formed thought yet that I have, but like it's, it's the beginnings of a fully formed thought, so I may kind of ramble a bit on it. But uh, there's a point where uh, where the characters are talking at the very end of the films, Gurney Hebert's character has already been killed and stuff. They're just hanging out, um, I'm just kind of watching the world end, and uh, and Dana, uh, the final girl, says something like. Um, you know what? I don't think Kurt even has a cousin because the whole idea behind it for them was that Kurt uh, was able to use this country home that his cousin um, had bought. And so there's a point where Dana says, you know, I don't think Kurt even has a cousin. Um, and, And that's a really good line. And when I watched it today, um, I, it struck me as there may be a bit more t- to that line than people think about sometimes. Um, I think, I think in some ways that, that line almost raises a question of, of you know, almost it almost raises a question about agency and. T- t- Terminism, almost, which would be interesting because that, that kind of runs kind of perpendicular uh, and kind of in opposition to what a lot of the main themes of Cabin in the Woods has been so far, where, you know, ultimately it's your choice. You know, you choose what you, um, what horror you unleash and things like that. You choose to go forward with this adventure um, despite all the warning signs and things like that even though there are aspects of the environment being uh, manipulated and stuff. But um, she said that, you know, I don't think Kurt even has a cousin, which kind of suggests, you know, um, if Kurt Kurt doesn't even have a cousin, then how, you know, how they get word of this house in the first place, you know, how they get involved in all this, you know, why were they the ones that um, this underground agency chose um, to do that and in a very weird way it kind of reminded me going back to my um, parallel I talked about with human behavior um, and research in that area it kind of brought me back to some of the discourse that the old school behaviorists had um, in psychology um, where um, um, Skinner and J.B. Um, 
Watson were talking about, you know, uh, their ideas about behaviorist psychology and stuff and saying that, you know, a lot of it is kind of almost a form of determinism because, you know, there are are stimuli and things in the environment that we react to. And uh, we can really only behave in ways that are kind of determined by the environment. And um, I forget now my profs at Asbury would be so disappointed in me but I forget if it was Skinner um, or somebody else who posed the question of you know um, however if this is true we have to consider the fact that that we as the researchers are the ones taking away their agency and taking away their choice in a way because if you're gonna theorize that they can only behave in response to things in their environment, then you have to ask, well, what does that mean for the researchers who are putting these things in the environment anyway? And what does that mean for society, for human beings, you know, the triggers and the environmental cues that are put in our lives to kind of respond to and how much agency we have and how much of our behavior is determined. And it was almost kind of an interesting line to just kind of toss out there. And I may be thinking way too far into it, which is probably the case, but it just kind of reminded me of that of that idea of just like, you know, this whole idea behind Cabin in the Woods has been, you know, you all chose these horrors, you all chose to pursue this, and you have to deal with the punishments and the consequences. And um, Dana kind of throws a wrench into that of just like, you know, I'm not sure we really did have a choice in all this because we were the ones who were chosen for it and we were the ones just kind of reacting to the things put into our environment. But yeah. It was a very rambling and meandering kind of thought about the ending of the movie. Again, I, I'm probably thinking way, way too far into it. But, I don't know. I don't but you know. asked. I, yeah, I, I don't know. I think there's a lot of lines in this movie um, that there's there's ways to read in between the lines in this movie. Um, there's a throwaway line uh, very early on uh, where they're discussing Jules and how they're going to uh, reduce her cognition. And you find out they've put something in the hair dye. Mm-hmm. So there's a, there's a, yeah, you're right. There's a, there's a sense of, uh, um, you know, there, there's free will here. Sure. But there's also this kind of weird hypocrisy that's happening as well, where, um, you know, where where they're definitely being pushed into the situation they're going to. Uh, you know, I mean, the the whole, once again, the whole reason Marty knows everything uh, is because they screwed up. You know, they were trying to get him a certain type of marijuana that, you know, would mess with his cognition. Mm-hmm. And he got a different kind, and that's why he knows everything. But that shows that they're, you know, that that, that concept of free will might you know, might, might not be as, as free as they would like to say it is. And maybe that's, maybe that's something else, is, you know, or, you know, to kind of piggyback on your point, you know, the, you know, with, within these horror movies, you know, maybe free will doesn't really exist, you know, in these horror movies, because they all, you know, as much as we want to scream at the TV and say, don't go down the hallway, you know, don't go in the basement, you know, you knock the guy out, hit him again, and kill him. You know, those, as much as you might want to make those statements, um, you know, they always make the bad decisions. 
so I don't know, man. I think I think you're you know that I I don't I don't I don't I don't disagree with that assertion. Uh, you know, as uh, um, I, I I I don't I don't disagree with that that reading at all. Um, ending of the movie, they decide. Um, Dana has a has a moment where she's going to kill Kurt. Uh, Kurt lets her get bitten by a werewolf because I guess when you pay money for that CGI werewolf, you you give it you give it a moment <laughs> in the sun. Sure. Um, and uh, so you have that moment where um, Sigourney Weaver gets an axe to the head. The little zombie redneck uh, torture child um, <laughs> gets knocked down with her because she's the one that does the axe to the head. Um, and then you have this really quiet moment, like you said, where, you know, she's like, you know, I don't think Kurt has a cousin. They decide to let the world get destroyed. Um, is there any interpretation to the world getting destroyed at the end, Al? Is there anything you can take from that? What do you think? Yeah. Um, something about that ending I've always thought about is, you know, um, is like you trying to put myself into into his shoes <laughs> as the character and just like you know when f- faced with the option of just like you know you're gonna die with the rest of humanity anyway or you could die like right now and and save humanity and i don't think i've really ever heard or seen anyone talk about um his decision or rather a lack thereof um, of his conviction there because like he kind of just makes a joke out of it and then um you know he lets uh, the werewolf attack dana and then he's just kind of you know he lights a blunt and um he's just kind of like okay well you know the world's ending and it's gonna <laughs> it's I've always kind of try to put myself in those shoes of just like you know you know if i were faced with the idea of just like well you're gonna die with the rest of humanity or you can just kind of die right now and 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 save humanity you know i'd like to think i wouldn't be so nonchalant with the idea of preserving my life a few more seconds <laughs> so, so uh, just to die with uh the rest of humankind but um um yeah i don't know i don't know how about you josh what kind of ideas do you have about the end of the world and I mean, I just, once again i think uh, you know I, I think it ties into um a lot of what we've already talked about uh with this idea that um <laughs> once again to get real meta with this idea that you know hollywood's um one of its foundations is the horror movie and if you take that away, you know, what do you got left? Mm-hmm. Uh, I think there's something being said there. I don't really dislike Marty's decision because I think Marty's decision is actually kind of on brand for him in this movie. Oh, sure. Yeah. You, you get that whole, you know, humanity is binding, mm-hmm. you know, uh, it's a, a argument that he gives very early on. Uh, and for him, you know, destroying all of humanity and dying is better than being controlled by the puppets. And he's been correct. You know, there are puppets that are controlling everything. So, I mean, I, 
I'd pro I'm I'm inclined to agree with you. You know, I think it's uh they a little selfish maybe to have those extra three minutes instead of just jumping down that hole and you know saving the entire world. Uh, but uh, for him, the idea of just you know living under this oppressive god's you know structure, you know Dana says it. Maybe it's time to give someone else a shot. You know, and uh, so I, I think yeah, it's got a pretty you know nihilistic ending, but I think it is on on brand for for Marty, um, because his great fear is that is the puppeteers and the idea that you know, the world is watching him and the world is binding him and things like that. Uh, so I, you know, the ending, I don't really know how else it could have ended. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I guess the, the opposite ending is, you know, Marty does. Cause, cause like if, if, if the ending had been Marty somehow finds some faith in humanity and kills himself, I think that would have been a really not on brand ending. You know what I mean? I, right. I, don't, I don't think that would have worked as well. Right. Uh, it would have been it would have been a really interesting um, portrayal of like the final girl archetype almost if they had gone the direction of um, um Dana actually does shoot and killed him. Um, it'd be kind of an interesting take on that or this idea of that you know, if I know, girl is um, has like a s- survive and fight um, at any cost kind of um, mindset and stuff. So it would have been an interesting um, um, use of that, I guess. However, from there, I don't really know where it would have gone. I don't really see the kind of character that Gurney Weaver was portraying to be the kind of just like, oh, okay, well, cool. You can go now and be free. So, I don't know. I don't know. Would have been I mean, I think Sigourney Weaver has to die no matter what happens in this movie. Because yeah. uh, she's the failure, <laughs> in a sense. Uh, I mean, the failure's on, really on her because she's the one over everything. So, I mean, she has to die. I just, I just wonder... I don't know. I wonder what my thought would have been if Marty had died and then you know, Dana just walks off into the sunset. You know, right. I kind of wonder what my thought would have been about the movie. Probably, probably wouldn't have changed it too much. Right. Um, but it's just one of those things where I just don't think, I don't think they ever portrayed Marty as, as that type of character. Right. You know? Yeah. So I don't know. I don't know. And I mean, there, there's a, you know, once again, it goes back to uh, that idea of you know the the judgment. You know, uh, you know Marty is not the type of character who will sacrifice himself for everyone else. Uh, so he deserves to die. So we get to watch him die. You know, it's like it's one of those. <laughs> it, it's one of the. It, it it all it all circles back around. You know, mm-hmm. I uh, I don't know. I, the the ending the ending is 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 interesting. To me, I, I, I'm like I said, I'm pretty convinced of the of the meta narrative of it, but I don't under, I don't know what is being stated by the entire world being destroyed at the end of it. Because uh, yeah, I just that that's a that's a weird way to go out, but at the same time, like I said, I don't I don't know any way to do it. I don't know if there mm-hmm. was another way to do it. So, well, this uh, 
you know, this this movie, uh, you know, was. I think it's it's definitely become a cult classic. It's a, uh, uh, it's weird, you know, uh, seeing Chris Hemsworth and stuff like this. Uh, this 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 very, um, you know, unThor like role. Although once again, Bad Times with El Royale. Uh, is another unThor like role if you're interested in him. He must be he must be close with Drew Goddard or something because he's done both <laughs> of movies. Um, but uh, yeah, I think I think this movie all the way around is just very solid, solid acting, solid script, uh, very great script. Honestly, uh, one probably one of the better, but like I said, one of the better written movies um, you mm-hmm. know I've ever seen. Uh, you know, uh, final. Final thoughts on uh, fi- final thoughts on Cabin in the Woods, Al. What do you think? Uh, it's a great one, and um, it's one of those where um, where it's not terribly um, centered on jump scares um, at all. So even if you're um, the kind of person who who isn't into a lot of horror films, I think this would be a good one to watch. Um, I think this is a great one to watch with your significant other or with friends. Um, I actually have a, um, a very close friend um, in Lexington um, who is not into horror movies whatsoever. And so he's asked me before, you know, if there are any that aren't, you know, extremely scary or jump scary uh, that we could watch together sometime. So um, I think uh, Cabin in the Woods is going to be one I kind of suggest to him. Um, if he's up for um, it's it's a lot of fun I mean it really is I mean yeah there's a lot of really kind of heavy uh, kind of airy themes and, and questions going on in it for sure but um, it is but at the same time it's just it's just a lot of fun there's a lot of laughs and yeah it's it's a good one to watch I think this will be one that I make an annual uh, watch every year um, around October. It's really good. Yeah, I'll probably do the same thing. There, uh, I just I, I I can't say enough good things about this movie. Um, you know, Bradley Whitford and Richard Jenkins really um, are really two of the two of the great character actors in Hollywood, and they bring so much to this movie. I'm just saying, there's <laughs> my, probably my favorite line. Uh, probably my favorite line from Bradley Whitford in this movie. Is when he's taking money from everybody for the bet, and he tells the intern, you know, you can't you can't bet on them. Maintenance is bet on them, and uh, and he's like he's like, well, what does that mean? He's like, well, do you want to split the pot? You know, if you do this, you have to split the pot with them. And he's like he's like, well, what would you do? And, <laughs> Bradley Whitford Hadley just goes more than anything. I just want this moment to end, and I just I laugh every time he just he delivers that so well. You know, it just it's just such a great line uh, that he just delivers so well, just off the cuff. And there's just so many little moments like that in this movie uh, that stand out. Um, and so I, I I can't I can't I can't suggest this movie enough. Uh, it's a it's a fantastic horror film but it's a it's a horror film that does something different um you know and it's and it's and honestly it's a it's a great uh great examination of horror films and horror history you know you could you could really like your like your friend you could also just tell them like and by the way this is basically what horror movies are you know (laughs) it's like this is what they are you know this 
this is what they are, guys. This is this is pretty much how they work, and uh, and so I think it's it's very clever in how it does that. Uh, it's it, it's critical of the genre. It critiques the genre, but it also has a pretty deep love of the genre as well. So I, that's a that's a hard tightrope uh, to uh, to cross there, and uh, they they pull it off. Um, Al, this is it. it. It for horror fest, this man. This is it. Sam uh, Hain is upon us, everybody. So we're, uh, you know, uh, we're moving to uh, Halloween. I think this one will be uploaded on Halloween, I believe, if I'm not. I believe I'm correct on that. So uh, by the time you're listening to this, you, hopefully you've had a good Halloween or are having a good Halloween. Um, Al, any, any last things for Horror Fest? Any, any last thing to tell our hundreds and thousands of, of followers for Horror Fest? <laughs> hundreds of thousands of listeners um um i mean just you know um i appreciate everybody uh who listens to us um uh, it's really cool of everyone to do um you know it helps um, comfort me and josh a little bit to know we aren't just um, kind of screaming into the void but um <laughs> but um so i appreciate you a whole lot if you listen to us um, i really do uh appreciate you even uh, even if this is um, a podcast that you listen to the first part of and have to pause it and tend to go back to and and you don't ever do, <laughs> just um, just uh, the fact that you think about us um, um, is really, really awesome. So I appreciate that. And um, yeah, I hope that with the breadth of horror films that we've um, discussed on here and that I've discussed um, on the website and my articles and things like that, um, I really hope I've um, encouraged some people to possibly look into um, um, some films they might not have heard of or seen. Um, I hope I've shown some light on some great uh, filmmakers and actors and stuff who you might not have heard of or seen. But um, yeah, horror is a terrific fandom. It can be a very fun fandom. Um, it can also be kind of a rough fandom at times, like anything else can be. <laughs> um, so I would definitely encourage that um, anybody who listens to this, if you're, if you are a fan of horror, um, I just encourage you to do your best to support the industry, support um, the good artists uh, and filmmakers in the industry who care about the genre. Um, uh, Cabin in the Woods is a perfect example of something that was made by and for people who love horror. Um, and I would just encourage you if you're, if you're a horror fan like me, just try to be um, the best kind of horror fan you can be. Um, and, and always just be respectful and as altruistic as you can, because um, as we talked about, there's some really awesome stuff in horror, a lot of really awesome um, individuals in horror. So I encourage you to be cool. And that's just kind of a general thing for fandom correspondence when we're talking about <laughs> fandoms that can get really great or get really rough. It's just try your best to be cool. Everybody. Yeah, just be cool. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That, that's that's uh, that, that's a pretty good segue into the whole fandom is, ever, is for everyone uh, spiel we, t- we tend to give at the end of these. And uh, like I said, uh, I'm, I'm thankful for everybody that listens. Everybody goes to the website, uh, reads the things that we write. Uh, you know, just 
and and as always, like I said, we we're not really uh, uh, trying to uh, to get rich off stuff like this. This is we're just like to talk about things that we that we love, and uh, that's that's kind of the goal here is to talk about things that we love and and uh, fandoms that that have influenced us. And so, if you have any comments whatsoever, we we do like to hear from you. As always, uh, go to our Patreon. We're on everything now. We're on Patreon, Instagram, Twitter. We're on Facebook. We're on all of it. Uh, just look up Fandom Correspondence on any of those. You should be able to uh, find uh, all the information you need. Let us know uh, what you like to hear. Um, you know, and uh, you know, we're just trying to give you content. So if you don't have to, you know, listen to Joe Rogan interview Alex Jones anymore, like that's a, <laughs> it's a thing that never needs to happen again and uh, we're just trying to give you content other than that and uh, so so hopefully hopefully we've done that hopefully we've done that all month once again i want to thank al for all of his expertise of uh, on all this H- happy uh, to do it if if my being on this podcast is has caused just one person to stop listening to Joe Rogan, then I'll, I'll have done a good job. <laughs> <laughs> if, if, if at one point you were like fan of correspondence or Joe Rogan, you chose fan of correspondence. You've, you've made, you've made your right decision. Uh, but, but once again, uh, just thank you once again for uh, listening to us. We hope you have a happy Halloween. Remember fandom is for everyone. And uh, wherever you're listening to us, hope things are going well for you. Mm-hmm.